Well, good morning, church. It's wonderful to be here with you this morning and to have this opportunity to worship together, to open the Word and to uh, celebrate our God together. I'm excited to be able to bring you uh, an installment on the book of Jonah. And we're going to be looking at Jonah chapters 1 and 2, which is half of the book of Jonah. Can you believe we're going to do half a book in one message? Wow, it's pretty amazing. And so if you do have your Bible at home with you right now, I'd encourage you to grab it, to open it up, and to join with me as we read through Jonah chapters 1 and 2. It goes like this. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Imitai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship and bound for the port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew. And I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them. And they asked him, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do? What should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied. And it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah. And they threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God, He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. 
You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled around me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord. And my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Allow me to pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this story we have of Jonah and of the ways that you were at work in his life and in the world at large. So Father, speak to us this morning as we uh, look at Jonah chapters 1 and 2. Speak to us, challenge us, change us. Be at work here through your word. Amen. Well, there are moments in our lives where we might dream of being a hero. We might dream of doing something so grand, so extravagant that it changes the course of history. Perhaps we've seen a movie and we've wondered, could we do those things that those people did if we were in the same situation? Could we accomplish these great feats of heroism in order to save the day? Or perhaps we dream of being a smaller hero, of saving just a few through something little but substantial. Well, one of my my favourite stories of a local hero comes from a sport that I have very little interest in, cycling. You see, many years ago, there was a race in cycling in 2002, and and this, this race is called the Tour Down Under. A man by the name of Michael Rogers was competing in this race, and he'd been having quite a good performance. I think he'd won the previous day. He was in a good position to potentially win the whole race. But as he was riding, all of a sudden his bike began to malfunction. Things started to go wrong and he realised he couldn't race anymore. Out of frustration, he got off his bike and he picked it up and he threw it to the ground, watching his lead, watching his competitors race ahead and leave him behind. The situation was ready for a hero. And along came a man by the name of Adam Adam Pike, a spectator who had been watching the race. And Adam had ridden his own very expensive $10,000 bike to watch the race that day. And as he stood there and watched, he saw Michael get off his bike in frustration and throw it to the ground. And in a a quick thinking moment, he, he ran out and he gave his bike to Michael. He gave his expensive bike to Michael and Michael raced off trying to keep pace. Well, it just so happened that this bike had almost identical specifications to the one that Michael usually rides. 
Everything was, was fit for him to ride it. The, the, the pedal clips, the pedal clips, cleats, fit perfectly. The seat was a touch low, but he was good to go. The call for a hero was answered. And Michael on that bike went on to race, win the day, and eventually win the whole race. A hero was needed. And as we begin reading Jonah together, we might find ourselves in a little spot of disbelief. So the chapter begins with a really substantial phrase. It begins with the words, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Imitai. This is a massive phrase. It's common in the Old Testament to be used when a prophet is called. When someone who is to be a spokesperson, someone who represents God, a prophet of God, this is the phrase that is given when they are called. This is a big deal. And as we read this, we might think of the great honour, the great opportunity, the amazing moment that has come upon Jonah to be called specifically and explicitly by God to do something seems like the greatest of honours and blessings. And though it's omitted in the NIV, this call that Jonah receives is not only to go, but it is to arise and go, to get up and go. Arise and go, Jonah. Arise and preach to Nineveh. Preach against it. What a profound and amazing calling to receive. And what is Jonah's response? It's admitted again, but he arises and runs. He arises and runs away. And many of us may find this hard to understand. How could someone who knows God, who knows who he is, reject his calling so blatantly? How could someone who knows God think that they can run away from him to get away? How could Jonah? But here's the thing. The truth is, this is not a story about Jonah. It's a story about God. It's a story that shows us the conflict between God's call for obedience and man's love for disobedience. It is a story that shows us God's hand in bringing things together for good. So the first thing that we learn as we look at the book of Jonah this morning is that God desires obedience. You see, it's not only ironic that when, uh, when Jonah ran, was told to go east that he ran west, but God's call itself seems on some level a little bit ironic. If you look at it, God calls it the great city of Nineveh. It's a great city. And yet he tells Jonah to go and preach against it. Go to those who are great and tell them they are not great. Go to those who think they are good and tell them that they are wicked. God is calling Jonah to be obedient, to trust him to trust in his sovereignty and to go and do what is foolish in Jonah's sight. But instead, Jonah is disobedient. 
He runs. He gets on a boat and he tries to get as far away from Nineveh and from God as he possibly can. And as he runs, we see that there are consequences for Jonah's disobedience. As Jonah boards a ship, God sends a storm to buffet the ship, to threaten to capsize it. And Jonah is forced to come to terms with the nature of his disobedience. As the sailors come and they wake him up, Jonah has to come to terms with the consequences of what he has done. And it would be easy to see this as punishment, as God's righteous anger upon Jonah. But if it was punishment, if it was just simple punishment, then perhaps what we might expect to see would be that Jonah would perish in the water. Or maybe that the other sailors would chastise him and and abuse him for what had happened. Or maybe the ship would capsize and Jonah would have to pay for the cost. But simple punishment is clearly not God's intent. Instead, we see that as Jonah is woken up in the depths of the boat and as the sailors find out that he is responsible for the calamity that has befallen them on the ocean, that Jonah exclaims this in response. He says, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and dry land. Jonah, who is in the process of willfully running away from God who is doing everything he can to go against what God has called him to do and and to, to run from God's calling, is brought all of a sudden to confess that he worships God. Through the consequences of Jonah's disobedience, God reveals Jonah's fault and draws him back. How often is the same true for us. How often does God work in the midst of adversity, difficulties, disappointment, relational breakdowns, sickness, injury or embarrassment to draw us back to himself? How often does God work in the midst of our failures, in the midst of our weaknesses, in order to restore us to himself when we have wandered? when we have turned from walking in his ways. The writer of Hebrews picks up on this idea in in Hebrews chapter 12 and he says in verse 7, Hebrews 12 verse 7, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? And in verse 11 they, they go on to say, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Consequences produce righteousness for those who respond correctly. And the power of what God does is not found uh, through Jonah's question of why. The power of of God's work in the midst of disobedience is not found in the why of the consequences, but in the what that God is teaching. Jonah knows why things have fallen apart. 
He knows that he's been disobedient to God. Even before the storm happens, it seems to insinuate, insinuate that Jonah has told the sailors that he is running from God. It took a storm for Jonah to realise where he had gone wrong. But it took three days alone in a fish for him to realise what God was doing in the midst of it. Perhaps we spend a lot of time at the moment in the why and not the what. Our lives can be so busy, so full, so, so filled to the brim that we only ever have time for a simple why, God? Why? We don't slow down and ask God what he is doing in the midst of it, what he is doing in us in our mess, what he is teaching us, what he is challenging us on. Or maybe at times we find ourselves afraid of the answer, afraid of what God might be saying, so we avoid the question altogether. We see relationships and friendships break down, but we're afraid of what sins or what lifestyle God might be calling us out of for that relationship to be reconciled. We're afraid of what God might require, so we run. Perhaps we feel a sense of emptiness in our work, but we're afraid of what God might be calling us into, and so we hide. Perhaps we feel that in the midst of our struggle and our grief and our adversity and as things are crumbling around us, we're afraid to ask God what he might be changing in us. And so instead, we clench our teeth and we push on. I encourage you this morning, take the time. Make the time. It's holidays. This is the best chance you may have to stop and to ask God, what are you teaching me right now? What are you calling me to right now? How is God prompting you into obedience right now? You see, God desires obedience from his people because his ways are good and right do you trust him are you willing to follow no matter where he might take you no matter to who he might take you to which community to which sporting team to which group at your uni or your high school or your workplace to which family member to what part of the world to which person who is suffering to to which person in in poor health where is god taking you and are you ready to respond are you ready and willing for God to teach you? Or have you stopped accepting his instruction and started listening only to your own? But there is more to be learnt from our passage this morning. See, I don't know how about you. I don't know how your Christmas was. Mine was nice. Thanks for asking. Uh, I hope yours was too. I'll hear about it when we're all back together, I guess. But our Christmas was quite nice. Ours was, it was lovely and, uh, and for many years, my family, the Venton family, have, have been doing this thing 
And finally, there was some controversy in the Venton family, in the Venton household in the lead up to Christmas. Ooh, controversy. You see, our family has grown over the years, and as new people join in and, and have recruited, <laughs> what is that? As new people join in and <laughs> marry in to the family, it's been wonderful to grow, but it has become harder and harder to do Christmas. Harder and harder to buy presents for everyone. And so a number of years ago, we decided to move to a Kris Kringle style. If you don't know what that is, you draw a name out of a hat, whatever name you get is the only person you have to buy for that Christmas. Super easy, lovely. And it's been a treat. It's been great. It's saved us so much. But unbeknownst to us, something was brewing behind the scenes. Unrest was being sown among the family. The great divide of 2021 was upon us. I am exaggerating, I know. It's not that big of a deal. But a small dispute did break out. You see, part of the process of this gift-giving time, before we, we get to that point, is to message ideas for presents into our family group chat. Things you might want, just general ideas, something to work off so that you don't get gifts you don't want or won't use or have to pretend you like. But things had reached a point where family members were just sending links to specific things they wanted. And sometimes you'd go to look and all you would get is maybe two items that equal the exact value that we do for Kris Kringle and nothing else to work off. And the question became... Was buying the items that were just given to us to buy, even gift-giving at all? If everyone was just going to post what they wanted, why don't we all go out and just buy our own things and bring them along and we'll open our own presents that we bought for ourselves? Well, this could not stand. And at the Venton Family AGM, we decided that members of the family must post ideas, not just links, so that we could return to giving actual gifts. And Christmas was all the better for it. Well, in our passage this morning, we also see a gift. And it's important what kind of a gift this is. It's important that this is a true gift. It is indeed a gift offered, not requested, not earned, not even really asked for at all. So the second thing we learn from our chapters of Jonah is that God's gift of salvation is offered to all people. The initial call of Jonah to go and preach against Nineveh might initially look like condemnation, that God is against this people because of their wickedness. But in the preaching is an offer, an offer for those who are living apart from God, to turn from their ways, to turn to obedience and to be saved by God. The first people in this passage who God intends to offer salvation to are the very people who stand against him, to the very people who are far off. And so in response, Jonah runs away. We learn later that that, uh, his fear is because he does not want this evil people to be forgiven. He doesn't want them to receive the grace and the mercy that God is willing to offer, but in doing so, Jonah himself sets himself up as someone who is wicked and disobedient to God. How can a prophet go and call a people to repent if the prophet himself can't follow God? 
Well, the answer is that God must first save the prophet before he can save the people the prophet is to go to. Just as God intends to save Nineveh if they repent, so too does God save Jonah by sending him a fish when he would drown. But God's not done there. You see, in chapter 1, verse 5, we we learn that the sailors who are battling the huge storm, it says all the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God. But then after the storm is calmed, when Jonah is thrown overboard, the response of the sailors is that the men greatly feared the Lord and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. You see, in the book... Every single character we have come across so far is offered to be saved. We see a great gift, a great offer of salvation, and it is for all people. To a city of people who are living in wickedness apart from God. To a prophet who would rather run than follow what God has called him into and to a people who worship other gods and know nothing of the Lord. All of them are offered the same salvation. And this is even more incredible when we consider that this passage is in the Old Testament when God's dealings were primarily still only with Israel, with his people, and yet he is already showing that he is willing to offer salvation for those who are far off, for those who are apart from him, who do not know him. This gift of salvation, of being saved, is not earned. It's not given to oneself. It's not requested in a group chat. It is a gift given by God. That's why Jonah, at the end of his prayer of thanksgiving in the middle of a fish, says, I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. Salvation comes from God. This is what we've been celebrating these last few weeks as we uh, celebrated Christmas together, that, that God sent his son that God offered salvation in the form of himself as a child, in the form of his own blood, by the death of Jesus, that salvation was brought from more than wickedness. Salvation was brought from more than disobedience, from more than waves and water, from more than the worship of other gods. Jesus offers salvation from all sin, from all wrongdoings, from all separation from God, from death itself. In Matthew 12, Jesus himself refers back to Jonah, saying, Just as Jonah was in the stomach of the sea creature for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man, that is Jesus, will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. Jesus was buried after he died for three days and he rose again. The salvation that Jonah is to offer Nineveh, Jesus makes complete on the cross. The forgiveness for the sins of the false worship of the sailors is accomplished in Jesus. It is a gift given by God in Jesus. Do you remember that this is a gift? Have you forgotten that it was given to you freely? 
that no amount of striving, no amount of goodness, no amount of work could ever earn this gift. But like Jonah, who exclaims, you, Lord, my God, brought my life up from the pit. God alone raises us up. God alone saves us. As God pursued Jonah to bring him back, so too does he pursue us. Does he call us back when we go astray, calling us to himself? Are you walking on your own this morning? Are you following your own path? Are you living by your own rules? Are you setting your own standard? Are you trying to earn your salvation, to forgive yourself? Come back to God. He is calling us to humble obedience, offering us free grace each day. There is no too far off. There is no too far out at sea, too far beneath the ocean, too wicked to be changed, too fearful to be saved. God hears our prayers. He hears us in the pit and he is willing and able to raise us up. Know this morning that God is willing and able to save you, to forgive you, to call you back and that this offer is for everyone. And may this morning, maybe God is calling you to be the one to bring that offer to others. Have you asked him who? Who he might be calling you to share his truth, his joy, his gospel, his forgiveness with? who he wants you to bring his gift to. Have you asked him? Or maybe this morning he's calling you back to obedience. He's drawing things out. He's setting things aside and he's moving in you to change, to restore. Have you asked him what he is doing? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you for your word. Thank you for the the way that it challenges us, it changes us. But thank you most of all that you offer us salvation, that you offer us yourself so that we can be forgiven. God, may we not forget that you offered it apart from anything we did, that you offered it apart from anything we could do, that it is free that it is good and that you are holy. So Lord, speak to us. Show us where we have gone wrong. Show us where we are walking by our own standards, walking our own paths and give us the strength to follow you. Father, be with us all the days of our life. Amen.